Jacob lived some 17 years after he and his sons come to live with Joseph in Egypt. Remarkably, Pharaoh allows them to live in the most fertile area of the nation, the territory known as Goshen. Even some of Jacob's brothers, amazingly, become shepherds to the royal flocks. The Lord uses a pagan ruler to be gracious to his people and to fulfill his plan. It's amazing, isn't it, those whom the Lord uses. Too often we think that that God can only use Christian people, and and we pray that, that Christians will be in place of influence. But I want you to know that all those who are in authority are allowed to be in their positions by the sovereign plan of God. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Proverbs 21, 21. As rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. God can work his will using unbelievers and pagans in spite of themselves. We we think of Nebuchadnezzar. We think, of course, of Caesar Augustus and others that the Lord overruled and intervened and used them to fulfill his sovereign plan. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist tells us. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. May it please him, as we've already sung and prayed this morning, to bless us and heal us and forgive us and to revive us. As for Jacob, when he meets Pharaoh, the the king asks the old patriarch, how old are you? He must have been a marvel to Pharaoh. And uh, his response is is somewhat interesting. We see there in chapter 47, verse 9, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. I'm 130 years old. That's something to be proud about, isn't it? It's quite remarkable. We see the the ages of the patriarch, their longevity is narrowing. But he goes on and also gives an added comment, but my days have been few and evil, have been the days of the years of my life. And I have not attained to the days of the years of of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. In his mind, 130 was far less than Jacob's 180 and even Abraham's 175 years. Compared to theirs, his earthly pilgrimage was much shorter in his mind. And I, I think that Jacob thought, no doubt, that perhaps his own ways had had something to do with the shortening of his life he he thought he was going to die any minute didn't he? he's been dying now for the last several years he will live 17 more or a few more years after this the word there when he says my days have been few and evil evil is not to be thought of as we think necessarily of sin but but years of misery and distress and certainly jacob had been some some miserable times hadn't he he had seen times of distress Jacob had lived a a long life. There were many difficulties, but the last years would be relatively peaceful and blessed as he spends his time primarily bedridden, and yet he's at himself. He has his faculties. He has his mind. And he knows that he has come to this time, and this is God's will for him to be where he is. And he had to have the assurance of the Lord for that, for him to make this long journey to Egypt and to to die in a foreign place. He was cared for. All of his family was around him. Their needs were being provided for in Goshen when all across the world there was famine at this time. God had truly supplied all of his needs, needs had been gracious to Jacob. And even though he lived several more years, 
Jacob plans his funeral. It's amazing here. He begins to think of that and, and makes some requests here. God's people have always been taking great care that their exit from this life is honoring to the Lord and, and, and thoughtfully carried out. And I would, I would just encourage each of you believers to think of that. Some of you young people say, well, how morbid, Pastor, on, you know, to think about that in this time. I'm young, we're, we're newly married, we have young children, or you may be in the middle years and you, you may think all that, everyone th- thinks all that's so far away from them, but, but there is an appointment out there for each of us to die. You will die. The Lord tarries his coming. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the, the last impression you will leave on this earth? As a pastor, I'm called to minister at that period of time so often and to, to participate in a service. I'm amazed at, at, in this day that lack of reverence is now, we see so often in people giving little thought at all about it, just any old thing will do. I was reading a commentary by Warren Wiersbe, who pastored for many years at the Moody Memorial Church, and he was saying that in, in his recent years, he's been called upon to minister at professing believers' funerals and what he had to, to listen to and go through before he was able to present the gospel. It was very difficult, readings from secular uh, writers and all kinds of music. And he was, in his commentary on Genesis, decrying that. And I wanted to say, amen, brother, amen. I would encourage each of you to write out your testimony. Make it clear and plain. You don't have to to talk about the day you were born and everything, what you made in high school and what courses you took and all that, but a a succinct uh, statement of how the Lord brought you to himself in saving faith, how the Lord intervened and overruled at times to bring you to repentance and faith because you can preach from the grave. If you have it, this is what I won't say. It's not some preacher saying, Brother so-and-so knew the Lord. This is you saying, this is what happened to me. And so I would encourage you to do that. And I would encourage you to plan out what you want because your funeral can be a testimony to the saving grace of God. There will be people who will never come to a worship service as this who will come to your memorial service, believe it or not, who will never come to a church, who will never listen to the gospel, and yet... You can be a soul winner and be concerned about the souls of people and the, one of the last, and you're exiting this, this world. And that's just all for free there this morning. I just put that in because it bothers me. It seems that God's people who think so carefully about every other, they save, they, they tithe, they have, they've got investments, they may have their plots bought and their caskets picked out and all that kind of thing, but they've never given much thought about what they want said or done And I'm not talking about praising your achievements. I'm talking about praising your Savior and uh, choosing music and all that would point to the glory of of the Lord Jesus Christ. That being said, Jacob gives some very specific instructions. Now, let me just pause before I go any farther and say, often people will tell me that, Brother Lamb, I want you to do this and that and all, and they tell nobody else. And as if I, ha- I have no power of authority to intervene at that point. You tell people who need to know. And I tell you where you can have it. Put it where the will is and they'll find it. They'll know what there, what, to, to, what you want done. And you put it there and very definitely what you want carried out. And even though he lives several more years, Jacob does. He plans his funeral. And God's people have always been concerned about these things. For one thing, Jacob does not want to be buried in pagan Egypt. It's as if he's saying, I'm not a pagan, and I want it to be known I'm not a pagan. He, he wants to be buried 
in, in promised land of Canaan as a testimony of his firm belief in the covenant God of his fathers and of himself that God had intervened in covenant with him and his grandfather and his father. Jacob was a pilgrim. And so he wanted to be buried with his forefathers in the lands where his descendants would return one day and live. Obviously, Jacob wanted his funeral to be a clear testimony that he was not an idol worshiper, that though he had to live in Egypt for a while, he did not embrace the ideals and the religion of Egypt. He was still the follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he wanted that to be known. He had not embraced the religion of the Egyptians. It seems as if the last years of Jacob, <clears throat> it appears here bedridden because he rises here and he rises again to give the blessing to his grandsons and then to his, uh, all of his sons as they pass before many years later. And the, though he has a keen mind and, and after he makes Joseph promise to bury him in Canaan, he lives for some time. No doubt these were years of worship and reflection if he indeed was bedridden and his mobility was uh, where he was not able to get out and about. It was time for worship and reflecting on the long pilgrimage of those years and the Lord who had brought him to this place at this time. God's gracious and miraculous dealings with him. Oh, had, had God not been gracious to Jacob? Has not God been gracious to you? The fact that you're here this morning, clothed and in your right mind, that the grace of Jesus Christ has pierced through the darkness, your rebellious heart, and brought you savingly to himself. Oh, oh, how precious. How sweet. No doubt he thought of the promises of God yet to be fulfilled. God has made some astounding promises to his servant, and not all of them have been fulfilled. And so, as he reflects, one day he knows the Savior would come to earth through his descendants. <clears throat> what a marvel that is, because if you examine any of them, maybe with the exception of Joseph, you can't imagine the Savior coming through the descendants of Jacob. They're sinners, aren't they? Sinful people who will need a Savior, and yet the Messiah will come through his descendants. And as he reflected and prayed and worshipped, bedridden as he was, the Lord began to reveal to him something of the future of the twelve tribes. Before Jacob dies, he adopts Joseph's sons. We see there in chapter 48 where he calls for the sons born to Joseph in Egypt and makes them his own. And he tells Joseph, these are mine. The others that will be born to you, they can be called by your name, but I'm adopting these boys as my own sons. There we see Jacob bedridden, his eyesight failing. Joseph's sons would no doubt have entered the room. They're young boys here, dressed in the royal guard of the courtesans of, of Pharaoh's court. They're highly privileged. They are in the court of Pharaoh, and they come to the humble abode of of their grandfather and their Egyptian guard reared as they were at court. And Jacob tells Joseph that God would, would multiply them and that one day that give them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. And Joseph's sons, <clears throat> Manasseh and Ephraim, would have part in that inheritance because Jacob would adopt them as his own sons. 
It's an amazing story. Joseph had been replaced, had replaced Reuben as the firstborn. And Joseph's sons would replace, amazingly, Simeon and Levi, the next two in line. So we see Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim instead of, of Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Now, humanly speaking, we get nervous at that, don't we? Because there is this human thing that rises up within us that's unfair, that's not right. The scripture has a lot to say about that. First of all, who are you to say what God does is fair or not? We're we're talking about the decision of the triune Godhead, aren't we? Who has a lot more information than you and I will ever have. And when when God makes a decision, it's, it's based on his absolute holiness and righteousness and justice. So you can rest assured that the good judge of all the earth will do right... Because of his attributes, he can only do that which is right. Levi's descendants were given no inheritance in the promised land. But as the Levites, who minister alongside the the priesthood, they will live in 44 cities scattered throughout Canaan. They have no property of their own. Simeon would be absorbed into the tribe of Judah. God had not forgotten their cruelty and anger and violence toward the men of Shechem. Do you see that God does make things right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It may not be like we think it should be, but God does not forget. And so despicable were their actions, God remembers, and he does not forget what they had done. Jacob adopts Joseph's sons and gives them a special blessing. This is the fifth time in the book of Genesis that we have seen the birth order reversed. It always is kind of unnerving to us. We always feel a little comfortable when we come uh, to this. God chose Abel, not Cain. He chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob instead of Esau, and now Joseph over Reuben and his In his sovereignty and and according to his own good pleasure and foreknowledge, he chooses Ephraim over Manasseh. And amazingly, Joseph doesn't like it. You see the humanity of all of us? Even when God is at work and we know that God is doing what he alone can, can do, Joseph is saying, now, Dad, that's not, you've got the, you've got the younger one instead of the older one, and you, you've got it mixed up. And what does Jacob say? I know what I'm doing. He repeats it. I know what I'm doing. Could we bow before the sovereign God of the ages this morning and say, Lord, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. We have such a flawed view of the whole thing. Such limited resources and knowledge. As is often the case in God's choosing, people without the perfect knowledge of God, His seeing the end from the beginning as He always does, His ways being past finding out. Joseph gets upset about this reversal of his two sons and he tries to change Jacob's hands. Have you found out that you can't change God's hands when He's at work? How futile it is to lift our puny fists to the God of the universe and say, no, no, I'll not have it that way. Jacob was being led by the Lord. 
and would have his will alone and, and knew what he was doing. He reiterates it. There's only one thing to do when you come face to face with the sovereign electing will of God. It is a mystery to us. It goes against the flesh. It is against our humanity, but there's only one thing to do when we come to this mysterious doctrine that is taught from the very beginning to the very ending of the Scripture. And that is of Eli of old, when when an unwelcome word came to him that his sons were going to be taken in judgment. What father would want to hear that? And yet he knew it was of the Lord. What was Jacob's response when, when Samuel said, God is going to take your sons in judgment? Eli, with all of his faults and failures, got it right. It's a, a verse that I often refer to, or a saying I often refer to in my own spiritual journey. It is the Lord. Let him do what he seemeth good. Can you let that become a part of your heart and mind and soul? When you enter into troubled ground and when, when God is at work and there's nothing you can do, it may go against your flesh and your humanity may cry out, this isn't right. Always know that God can only do that which is right. And would you pray, it is the Lord. Let Him do what seemeth Him good. Paul writes and so beautifully in Romans 11 about this very thing. Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. He always acts in wisdom and knowledge. God's scales are always perfectly balanced. One does not outweigh the other. Sadly, some preach God's love outweighing God's holiness. It cannot be. One facet of the diamond of God's attributes does not outshine the other. Turn it if you will, but God's holiness and justice and perfection is an absolute complementary and perfect balance. Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How Yes, how unsearchable are His judgments. And I remind us all, His ways are past finding out. If you wait till you have all your questions answered before you submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins. If you wait before you submit to God's calling in your life until you've got it all figured out on the spreadsheet of your finite, your puny, finite wisdom, you will never come to Jesus Christ. When you stand on the ocean of God's grace and mercy and dive into that ocean without a bottom and without, without shore, and say, Lord, you must buoy me up, for I'm casting myself upon the sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There you'll find the Lord. Who has known the mind of the Lord, Paul asks. Can you figure out God's mind? There are those who think they can. Or who has been his counselor? That's a, that's a humorous thing, is it? Telling God how to work it out. We often do that, though, don't we? I found sometimes in my praying, I suggest to the Lord how he could work things out. I've told him how he could correct certain people and get them straightened out. Have you not done that? Now, Lord, if you just do this and this and this and this, there. 
I have rarely found him to do that. Praise his name. Who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? Nobody ever first gave to the Lord. What you gave to the Lord in the tithes and offerings this morning, you were first given that by the Lord. All we can do is give back to him what he's first given to us. My mother, when I was a little boy, would would give us money to put in the offering plate. And even as a little boy, I used to think, this is not my money. I knew that the principle of giving, but she was doing something wisely far beyond. She was teaching us that everything was the Lord's and what was hers was the Lord's, and she gave me what to give to the Lord. He first gives to us, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. There's only one thing to do when you come to this choosing, electing grace of God. is bow before Him and say, Lord, I worship You. You can do only that which is right. And we obey and submit ourselves to Him. To those who cry unfair, and there, there are many who will, let me ask, how would you know what's unfair? What do you base that upon? Your view of fairness and justice is flawed. Do you realize that? You're looking at it through the, the, the vision of a depraved sinner. We would not know what is right or wrong or fair or unfair if we didn't have the Word of God before us. Who, in, who invented righteousness? Who, who gave us the standard of fairness? How would you know what was fair? Reveal it to us in his word. He who knows all things, who has all information that will ever be known, who created all things and ordains all things and sustains all things, as Peter told the people on the day of Pentecost by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God, may I remind us he can only do that which is right. Jacob ought to know this. God has so graciously intervened and, and blessed and brought him to the place where he is. And when he sees his father blessing his sons, he wants to change his hands. Oh, beware when you get involved in the dealings of God to try, try to thwart them. You will not win that battle. Do you think that if Joseph changed the hands of Jacob that he would have changed what God was going to do? We see it played out. We know the rest of the story. We know when the land is divided up, who gets what. God has revealed to poor, frail Jacob his will. Ephraim and Manasseh will become strong leaders in Israel. Do you know, by the way, this is the only time we ever read of Joseph being displeased with his father or anyone else for that matter. Other than this little snapshot into Joseph, he seems almost, he's presented to us by the Holy Spirit, not that he was, almost as a perfect type. But here, Joseph, even Joseph, gets a little nervous when his father reverses the order of what he thinks is right. May I just tell you that God is going to reverse some things in your life in this pilgrimage journey that you thought should be this way, and he'll do it a different way. Lord, everyone else, and you fill in the blank. Why are you dealing with me like this? Fill in the blank. We must bow before him and say, Lord, 
It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Jacob gives all the glory to God. We must learn to do that. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, creator and sustainer and ruler of all, through whom all the promises and provision of salvation comes. And in spite of himself, God had had led and guided and overruled Jacob to this very hour. We can all testify of the same thing in our lives, can't we? Here we are. Trophies of God's grace. Here at God's bidding. As Paul will later write, In Romans 9, verse 23, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. I want you to look here in our text in chapter 48. Look there in verse 21 and 22. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you. And bring you again into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the land of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. It's a very curious verse there, the last verse of this chapter. Jacob gives Joseph an unexpected inheritance, a a, a piece of property that he had taken as a result of a battle with the Amorites. And many wonder when that could be. This is the only mention of of Jacob at war. But he specifically says, I'm giving you this which was taken from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Some have suggested that it was during the debacle at Shechem with his sons back in chapter 34. The only other time that we hear this portion referred to or mentioned is in John 4 verse 5 where Jesus talks to the woman at the well and she was from there. Jacob's faith overcame the will of man, Joseph's will, and just as Isaac's faith had overcome the will of Joseph. Aren't you glad that God will have his will? He prevails in spite of us. Jacob was obedient to the to the leading of the Lord and it is a prophet here. God gives him that ability to prophesy. I I must mention here in passing in verses 15 and 16, there are two first mentions in this portion of Scripture, and we ought to always take note of the first mentions of something in the Scripture. First of all, you see there in verse 15, God is a shepherd. That's the first time it's mentioned. When you see he blessed Joseph and said, uh, God before whom my father's uh, father Ab- fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me. That word there means shepherded me. This is the same picture that David will draw upon when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He sh- this is the first mention in the scripture of God as a shepherd and it's a beautiful, tender picture. There's a second lo- first mention here in verse 16. The angel which redeemed me. This is the first mention of the word redeem in the Bible. Though it's, it's pictured in other ways, this is the first time it is used. He redeemed me. Praise God for the redemption of our Savior. He buys us back from the, the slave market of sin. And of course, the angel of Jehovah is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jo- Joseph, Jacob s- sees it. He fully understands the gospel and what God is going to do. The angel which redeemed me from all evil. The angel of the Lord here, I believe, being the, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jacob gives Joseph this unexpected inheritance. And he blesses him with a, with a double portion. Jacob's faith over, was an overcoming faith. And we see there in verse 20, He blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Ephraim became so dominant that in the future, when the ten tribes break away to form their own kingdom, it will be Jeroboam from Ephraim who leads the rebellion in 1 Kings chapter 11. Eventually, the entire northern kingdom will be called Ephraim. Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die. That's coming to all of us. Here we are with Jacob. He's making his final plans. He's putting things in order. Behold, I'm going to die. Well, not today, not just yet. But shouldn't all of us live with that in view? I'm going to die. And since we do not know when, shouldn't we live today as if we would die today? Is that, is that too morbid to think about? Because it is quite possible that any of us or all of us could be called to stand before the Lord before the setting of the sun. You know that's true. And if that is true, if the Lord is at hand, He's at hand in our presence here, His coming for some of us is at hand, His coming to the earth again we believe is imminent. If the Lord is at hand, if He's nearby, shouldn't we acknowledge that in all that we do, all that we say, all of our decisions? If our own demise is at hand, our lives are as a vapor, as frail as a a tale that is told, as a mist, the fog in the morning. On the mountain this morning there was fog. And then it lifts just quickly, and then you see very clearly. We're all passing. Behold, I die. We are dying, aren't we? We may not die today. Eve did not die immediately, but Eve did die, didn't she? And so will you. And so will I. The question remains to all of us, then what? It is appointed a man once to die, and after this, the judgment, the reviewing, the examining. And only one question will suffice. Are you in Christ Jesus? Or not? Are you saved? Have you been regenerated by the power of God? Has the angel of the Lord redeemed you as Jacob can testify? It's certainly not because of Jacob's perfection, isn't it? Is it? We could choke Jacob about half the time as we studied him. His, his conniving, his scheming. Several different times Jacob has not been all that he should be. But we praise God that the grace of God is in spite of us, isn't it? It's not because of our goodness. If that were the case, none of us would be saved today. Behold, I die, but God shall be with you. Can I tell you that we're all going to die, but we can rest assured this, that God will be with those that we leave behind. Jacob knows by the law of averages that he will precede Joseph into heaven, but God shall be with you. What could be more important? I will say this, if you knew this was your last day on earth, those of you who are parents would want to know that your children were with the Lord and that He was with them. That becomes very, very important, doesn't it? All else pales into that that significance. But God shall be with you. 
and bring you again into the land of your fathers. You see, Jacob's faith was not based on some wishy-washy emotion. Not some tale that was told. But his faith was based upon the eternal word of God, the God of all the ages, the ancient of days. And our faith today, folks, is an ancient faith, isn't it? A faith handed down from the saints to us that we hold very precious and dear. Our God, before whom we'll stand in judgment one day, has sent a Savior, His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place and for our sin, making, when we come to this hour, when we come to this time, when we come to the valley of the shadow of death, that He'll be with us. And say with the psalmist David, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the lot that's coming to all of us. What a poignant picture we see here. Jacob, he's been bolstered up in the bed on his staff and against the bedstead. Very frail. Still has his mind. Still has his faculties. Here is Joseph in all of his regal splendor. He spent the last several years at the court of Pharaoh. He's very well trained and educated, a polished young man. Proud father of these two young boys. So glad he can bring them before his father. They come in their strange Egyptian garb. and Jacob doesn't know which one is which. He, he could not recognize them. He, he didn't know who they were. But God intervened. And he told him which one to bless and which one would be what. What a solemn picture that is. Those boys, I'm sure, could not fully appreciate all that was transpiring that day. Even as our young ones here, when the gospel is preached, may not fully comprehend all that's transpired when we observe the ordinances of the Lord and come to his house and say these things. But they sense that something is important here. The Spirit of God is at work. May we be obedient to Him. May the Holy Spirit have His will in this meeting today, this worship service. Could there be someone in our midst that the Lord is preparing for glory? Perhaps you have not humbled yourself to the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what a tragic thing that would be to have been around the things of God, to have even been in the house of God where the gospel is preached and then leave here today unsaved and lost and died and go out into a Christless eternity. We beseech you, be you reconciled to God. Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If you feel your need of him, would you come to Jesus just now? He will save you. He will save you now, as the old song says. You must go to Jesus Christ and take him in his word and turn from your sin. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. How, how clear it is to us. How precious it is. We pray that you would prepare those who are about to face you. Oh, may no one in this place be lost today, Lord. Leave this house not knowing you as Lord and Savior. Oh, would you by your spirit and by your gospel... Touch that heart that's yet unsaved, yet unrepentant. Lord, those of us who do know you, we thank you that day after day you have led us and guided us to this very place. During this time of holiday where so many are feasting and reveling about this nation and its independence, we think of, Lord, 
all the sacrifices, the soldiers who've lost their lives for us to to meet in freedom in an assembly today. We thank you of all that's been done that's gone before us. May we, we bow our heads and worship you and thank you and be humble before you. You said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. And so, Lord, at the close of this service, we humble ourselves and confess that we have taken lightly your blessings and and the freedoms that we have. I'm afraid, Lord, that Christians will cry the loudest when we don't have the freedom to evangelize. When these things, if you tarry, are taken away from us, and yet we're not working while, the, the, while it is day, before the night comes when no man can work. Oh, thank you for this open door. Even though there are many adversaries, may we go through the open door and seize the opportunities and bear clear testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, and to occupy till you come. Bless your church. Build your work, we pray. In Jesus' precious name.